This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, October 28, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's reading is from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you for uh, being with us this morning. We are beginning our series in Thessalonians, and so I'm going to pray. I don't know about you, but man, I've had a hard week, and so I feel a little ill-equipped to even preach, which is probably the way I ought to feel every time, but perhaps you feel um, a little weak today. So I'm going to pray and ask that God will move me out of the way and say what He needs to say. Father, Our world is so busy and so noisy that it's easy to miss your voice in the midst of our lives. It's tempting to allow affliction and difficulty and hardship to overwhelm us and to even extinguish your light in our lives. Forgive us for doing that deliberately at times. 
And at times where it just kind of happens unintentionally, Lord, I ask for your help. We are weak people. And it's in those moments where we realize it most that you promise to be our strength. And so this morning I ask that for myself, but I ask that for all of my brothers and sisters here. Lord, we are weak and you are strong. We are foolish and you are wise. We are worse than we'll admit and you are better and more glorious than we can imagine. So we ask this morning, Lord, that you will teach us about what it means to be a Christian in this messed up world. It's very tempting to believe that as we consider the chaos in our own homes and the chaos in this world, that you, Jesus, are actually not on your throne. But that is not true. You are reigning, and you are ruling, and you are working even if we cannot see it. So help us to believe and to walk by faith, not by sight, with full conviction that Jesus, you are ruling and reigning and with deep belief that you are returning. Thank you for the word you've given us in this letter to the Thessalonians and I pray that you will use it to change us. Holy Spirit, convict us where we need conviction, comfort us where we need comfort and lift our eyes to see where our help truly comes from. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we're going to be um, largely in the book of Acts this morning. If you have your Bible, you should open up to Acts chapter 17, and then uh, we're probably going to go to the left of that a little bit. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So four Gospels, and then the really story of the early church. I want to begin by uh, just a statement that is maybe rather bold, but I think uh, with some explanation you'll understand, and that is that I don't believe anyone in this world wants to be normal. We're beginning a new series, uh, which is what is typical for us. I'm not a huge fan of topical series, but occasionally we do that. We normally go just straight through books of the Bible, and we are now going straight through the Letters to Thessalonians, the first and the second. And the series is titled, The Normal Christian Life. And according to the messaging of the world, so that would be through the TV, through media, through wherever you might hear the world preaching its sermons and beliefs, through the messaging of the world, it seems like normal has almost become a bad word. The idea of being normal seems to reek of the ordinary and the unexciting. No one wants to be normal. No one wants to be ordinary. And to prove or to seek the awesomeness that they want to aspire to, it seems like our world does very dumb things. But normal, in the eyes of the world, are people who are nameless. People who never change the world. People who do nothing. A normal life is viewed negatively as a routine life. A life of the status quo. A life that's predictable. A life that's ultimately meaningless. No one hopes to build a life that ends with an obituary declaring this man was ordinary. He had a eh, normal life. None of us want that. Now, that probably describes the normal life of the world, but I 
do not believe it should describe the normal Christian life in Christ. By definition, a Christian, one who is called out of the world, is very different and abnormal. It's been said that, and I'm not sure who said it, but I thought it's brilliant, that a sane man would appear insane in an insane world. A sane man would appear crazy in a crazy world. Or as the Apostle Paul has said it in Scripture, that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed through God's people, the church. And that wisdom is foolishness to men. In other words, the Christian's everyday normal life in the world is by nature not ordinary. On the contrary, the normal Christian life, a life that is like Christ and for Christ, is extraordinary. And a normal Christian life possesses the power, as we'll see, to turn the world upside down. Now, the letter to the Thessalonians is a letter, it's a real letter to real people in real history. This is not just legend, this is not myth, these are not stories. And so this was really a letter written. And it's one of the first letters that the Apostle Paul, a real guy, whoa, there goes my mic, wrote to one of the first churches that he planted. And due to tremendous persecution, he is, his time with this people in Thessalonica actually was cut quite short, unexpectedly. And even after his team departed from their time in this city, he was very anxious about wanting to help this new church that had been planted, wanting to teach them about the new faith that they had just come into. And so, through these two letters, Paul writes to explain to them what it means to be a Christian. And as he does this, we hear about their normal Christian life that has become famous across all of Macedonia. Now, we also learn that the life that they come into, if you will, in Christ was not without cost. And what I mean by that, it was very difficult. It was full of affliction. It was full of hardship. He reveals that their quote-unquote normal Christian life was so antithetical to the world that it is very normal for the world to be antagonistic towards the Christian life. They don't like the Christian life. They hate Christians. So in his first letter, he reminds them what he had taught when he planted the church. Christians are going to suffer affliction. And if you read throughout the letter, you'll hear that word affliction come up very frequently. If you read Paul's own explanation of his own journeys, he talks about his own affliction and his own suffering. And we struggle as Christians with suffering because we wrongly don't expect to suffer. Paul says this is part of the normal Christian life. And then in his second letter, he assures them that these afflictions are doing something. These difficulties in life are sanctifying us, changing us, conforming us more to the image of His Son, and they are preparing us for Christ's return. 
These two letters talk about Christ's return probably more frequently than most of Paul's letters. I don't know how often you think about Christ's return, pray for Christ's return, look forward to Christ's return, wake up in the morning and go, nope, He didn't come, return. I find myself, the older I get, doing that quite often. So it's important as we start this series to give you some historical context to to intro you to this letter a little bit. It was written around 52 AD, which may mean nothing to you. Just think of it as 20-ish years after the resurrection of Jesus. And at that time, this city called Thessalonica was a very important city. Could you put that map up? And in this city, uh, or this city was located in a very strategic place for the Roman Empire. It was positioned on the coast of the Mediterranean, actually the coast of Greece, and it was strategic because it was somewhat of the doorway to the eastern part of Rome. It stood at the intersection of some of the main or the main trade routes. It would be like a city that's center between I-5 and I-90, or between Highway 2 and Highway 9, right? A hub city where you have to go through in order to get to anywhere. Though very different than Snohomish, I find Snohomish is a weird place. And by that, I mean it's like the nexus of the universe. Like all roads through here to there, like go to Wenatchee, go to Seattle, go up north. Like it's weird how all things kind of come together like this hub city. Very similar to what an extreme Thessalonica looked like, actually. But it was originally founded by um, one of Alexander the Great's officers. He named it after his wife, which is a very loving thing to do. And it was a city that was full of kings who ultimately were very troublesome for Rome. There was a lot of rebellion in this little city against Rome. And so in 169 B.C., which again, just think of 169-ish years before Jesus was born, um, the Greeks of this city actually rebelled against Rome and they defeated them. They didn't defeat the whole Roman Empire, but because of where they're located, the whole Roman Empire was mainly east. And so when you defeated this garrison or a small part of it, it was a pretty major victorious battle. However, it only took a year for Rome to come and go, no one beats us, and they decimated Thessalonica and conquered all of Macedonia. And so in order to kind of quell all the rebellions that had always happened, they divided into four different districts, and Thessalonica became the capital of one of these districts. And it really doubled as the capital for the entire region, because that's where the Roman governor who ruled the whole region lived at. And so it was a very important city. But it was a free city. By free city, what I mean is that they did not have to pay Roman taxes, though that they were under Roman rule. They had a very unique relationship with Rome. They didn't have Roman troops stationed within the city walls. Um, They were free to do what they wanted, and they could appeal to Rome for help, um, for legal representation, for all kinds of different things, but they didn't have to uh, pay taxes or function under the empire in a a real intense way. Um, They just had to worship the emperor. As long as they agreed to worship the emperor, as long as they agreed to uphold the decrees of Caesar, then peace was kept. And so this city was in a very kind of uh, advantageous position with Rome, and they didn't want anything to disrupt that position. And so anyone that came and threatened that 
uh, they would fight against or would be a problem for them because they had in danger of wrecking their relationship with Rome. And so they didn't allow any new rebellions. They didn't want to have talk of any new kings disrupting this new world order. Well, enter King Jesus and his ambassadors coming in saying, Jesus is king over all. That created some problems. More than anything, as I said, they wanted to keep peace with Rome. But as we heard in Acts 17, um, the planting of the church in Thessalonica was anything but peaceful. And spiritually speaking, no plant, church plant is ever supposed to be peaceful. And I don't mean it's supposed to be violent, but it's supposed to be disruptive. I find it interesting that many of the churches that are planted, including some of the ones I've led, isn't disruptive like that. And I have to ask why. Because when you're planting a church, you're not planting a social club. You're not planting some all-you-can-eat spiritual buffet restaurant where you just go and enjoy a sense of spirituality the way you want. You're not building a community center that's just going to compete with the world and try to do cooler events than they can pull off. What it is when you're planting a church is you're establishing an embassy. An embassy from a better country in a foreign territory. It is the reclaiming of a people. A reclaiming of a place for the rightful returning King Jesus. I'm not sure how many people when we planted Restoration Road Church went, wow, those guys have just came into town and said, Jesus is King. Whoa. That's disruptive. And I don't say that as a condemnation on us as a church, but perhaps a misunderstanding of what we're doing or a misperception of the world of what we're doing. It's much greater than just building a new little community. The planting of an embassy in Thessalonica is disrupting this world. Now, if you've been in the church at all, you would have heard talk about the Apostle Paul, a man who at one point murdered Christians and then became a martyr as a Christian. He is responsible for writing about half of the New Testament. He's responsible for planting most of the churches in the early church. And so they'll talk about his missionary journeys, and there were three of them. And so if you or in the book of Acts, if you turn back to Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9, you don't need to go there, but that's the story of Paul. And when you get to Acts 13, you find Paul in this city called Antioch. So the shift in the book of Acts goes from Peter and Jerusalem to Paul and Antioch about halfway through the book. And from Antioch, which becomes somewhat of a church planting hub, they go out and they journey around Asia and different parts around the Mediterranean. They plant different churches, all of which, not in all of which, many of which have letters written to them. So, a letter to the Galatians is to the Galatian church and those types of things. So, on his first missionary journey, he was sent out with his buddy Barnabas. And if you remember Barnabas, Barnabas was the one guy when Paul became a Christian and everyone was scared of him because he used to kill Christians. Barnabas came alongside him and said, This guy's legit. I know he's been baptized. He loves Jesus and he goes off with them and he begins to plant churches and preach the gospel throughout Asia and the southwestern kind of part of um, 
the Mediterranean. Now, at some point in that first journey, they brought a young guy who was Barnabas' cousin named Mark, wrote the Gospel of Mark. Mark bailed on him. And Paul was really irritated. They don't say why he bailed, but he bailed, he left, it became too difficult or whatever. And so they eventually returned to Antioch after their first mission. Mark was not with them. They reported all the amazing things that would happen. And then the apostles in Jerusalem were hearing that Gentiles were becoming Christians. Because in the first 10 to 15 years of the church, it was mainly Jews becoming Christians. And so they're like, hmm, let's make sure that like what Paul is preaching is actually the same Gospel. And so they, Antioch, the church, sends Paul to Jerusalem. It's in Acts chapter 15. And they kind of ask him, what are you preaching? What's going on? And he reports to them what has happened, what he's preaching. And they basically give them approval to say, you know what? The Gentiles are being saved and Paul has been sent. Go and, and you know, preach and, and plant churches. And so he does. And so after that meeting, he goes, you know what? Let's go and return to all the churches that we already planted and all the disciples and we'll strengthen them and encourage them. And Barnabas says, cool, let's take Mark. And Paul says, no, we're not taking Mark. And there rose not a small argument between them. And Barnabas is like, fine, me and Mark are going this way. Paul's like, cool, Silas, you're with me. And so Paul and Silas begin that revisit to all those churches. But it kind of changes, if you will. First place he goes to is Lystra, a place that he had visited before. This was the place where when Paul went in and started preaching, they dragged him out of town and stoned him. Now we think of stoning like, you know, a little pebble. Oh, ow, right? No, like stoned him to the point where they believed he was dead he gets up and he goes back into town and preaches, right? So like, stud. Well, there's probably a young Timothy that's watching him there because when he returns, Timothy joins the team. And so now you have Silas and Timothy and Paul, which we'll see is at the beginning of the Thessalonian letter. This is the team that's going in and planting this particular church and ministering to this church. But right after Timothy joins the team, things get really hard. And you can follow this journey in Acts 15 all the way up to where we had read this morning, Acts 17. They start going into different regions where they've been before. And then Paul actually says the Holy Spirit stopped them. He's like, I was planning on going here and then the Holy Spirit stopped me. Don't know what that means. But clearly there was a roadblock put in that he could not go to the direction he wanted, which was basically east. Okay, if I don't, can't go east, I will go north. So he starts to go north to the churches he'd visited there before. And when he attempted to do that, particularly going to Bithynia, Paul says the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So it wasn't just like, it was hard. We couldn't do it. It's like Jesus said, no. How? I don't know. But Paul says, Jesus stopped me. The Holy Spirit stopped me. Like What you see is like Jesus going, no, you're going to go that way. Forcing him to go that way. And that way was west. It's very different than the way Paul expected. Perhaps different than where he wanted. It was much harder than it was in the east where the Jewish Gospel had taken hold. Did you know that's part of the normal Christian life? 
Jesus forcing you in a direction that you didn't expect or want that's harder than what you thought it would be? The normal Christian life. And so Paul goes to a city named Troas. And in Acts chapter 16, if you turn there, he gets a vision. In Acts 16, he's in Troas, having been starting to force west a little bit. It says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and this was it, a man of Macedonia. So he's a Macedonian, I don't know if he had a t-shirt that said, I heart Macedonia, something to indicate he was from Macedonia, this region. He was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the Gospel to them. You notice the first time the we is used there. The we is the narrator. The narrator is Luke. So this is likely where Luke joined the team. So you have Paul and Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke board a ship and they head west to Macedonia, which is that area in Greece on the left there. First place they come to is Philippi. You should be familiar with Philippi. There's a letter written to the Philippians. And in Philippi, he has a difficult time. He goes to their public place of prayer, whatever that is, right? There's some place where people typically are gathering to pray and probably have spiritual conversations. So he goes there, he starts to preach Jesus, and people start to believe. The next day and many days after that, he keeps going to the place of prayer. And more people believe. But there's this one girl who Paul says is really annoying. A demon-possessed girl who won't start stop screaming at him. And finally, fed up with her, it's like, that's it! Jesus, get her! I cast out the demon in the name of Jesus and she's saved. The problem was, there was a number of people making a lot of money after her demon fortune-telling. And people begin to be very upset because it disrupts the whole economy. And so, a riot ensues. Paul and his companions are literally dragged into the marketplace. They're eventually thrown into prison for casting down the demon of this girl. And they're put in stocks. And then through a miraculous earthquake, the jail just opens up. Silas and Paul are just sitting there. And the Roman guard's like, that's it, I'm dead. Takes the sword out, it's about to kill himself because if they escape on his watch, they're going to kill him anyway. And Paul's like, no, 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 don't, we're still here. Chill, dude. He's like, tell me how to be saved. And he becomes a Christian. His whole family becomes Christians. And a church is planted. And eventually he leaves the city. And he goes to Thessalonica. And there, they start to preach Jesus. And as they preach Jesus, another riot ensues and another church is planted. And I'll return to that in a second since that's the letter we're dealing with. But after Thessalonica, he travels to a city called Corinth. He wrote a letter to them eventually. He likely wrote 1 Thessalonians from Corinth. But as Corinth, he starts in the synagogue and the leader of the synagogue actually becomes a Christian. Another riot eventually ensues and another church is planted. 
And then after Corinth, he goes to a city called Ephesus. You can read that story in Acts 19. It says when he gets to Ephesus, he spends a couple years there and he's doing incredible miracles. They don't explain all the things he's doing, but they said it's so incredible that he's even taking like hankies that touch Paul. And they're taking those to other people who are sick and they're like, oh, and being healed. Incredible miracles. People are becoming Christians all over the place. And as they become Christians, this pagan city, they come to love Jesus. They take all their books of witchcraft and they start piling them up in the streets and light them on fire. I don't know the last time we've seen that around here. Be awesome. But the silversmiths get very upset because no one wants to buy any more idols. And so a riot ensues. And they drag Paul's companions into the arena. And they lead a protest literally for hours. Paul escapes. And a church is planted. Do you see a pattern? Right? We have this idea that Christianity, like, oh, it just kind of comes together in all fluffiness and joy. When the pattern we see is that it's often birthed out of incredible difficulty. In fact, what we see is that it's normal for redemption to rise from persecution. That it's normal for soft hearts to rise out of hard places. That it's normal and actually expected that crucifixion will always precede resurrection. And that is true personally, and that is true corporately. I want you to think about that for a second. And this has been very real to me as I've experienced just difficulty in life. Reminding myself that crucifixion precedes resurrection. That hardship gives birth to glory. And that perhaps there's no other way for it to happen. God calls and creates some of the strongest and most faithful servants through some of the most difficult and hostile places. It's through affliction and through adversity that God brings salvation and glory to Himself as part of the normal Christian life. That's the story of the Thessalonians. And perhaps that's your story. I know many of your stories here. Your friends of mine, I've, I've heard how Jesus saved you and Man, some of it's come out of some crazy affliction. Some darkness. Some difficulty. And then there's others here who go, man, my testimony sucks. Right? And you think, man, I don't, I don't got the color. I don't got the rebellion. I don't got the tremendous affliction that, that brought me to my knees. First of all, I'd say be thankful. But secondly, I want you to understand that the testimony of any individual is equally exciting. When you understand what the Bible teaches about the condition of man apart from Christ, every salvation is a miracle. Every salvation 
is a miracle because everyone has a hard heart of stone until Jesus saves you. Everyone is spiritually blind. Everyone are children of wrath. We are all enslaved to sin. We were all hostile enemies of God. We were all dead in our sin. But God gives new hearts, gives eyes to see, and frees us from sin and makes us alive. This is perhaps what's called the abnormal beginning of the normal Christian life. Now, once we are saved though, as we see with Paul, we are sent. What do I mean by that? Well, a couple of years ago, as you should know, on Netflix, a show came out called Stranger Things. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sad for you. Because it's fantastic. It's a throwback to all things 80s, and I'm a child of the 80s, and so it's just is nostalgic and wonderful. The premise of the show, though, is really important. It's about two different worlds that exist. There's the regular world, which is seemingly full of life and light. And then there's the world they call the upside down, full of death and darkness. And these kids in this show, which is so 80s, right? 80s was always the team of kids, the stand by me, the goonies, like all these kids. These kids are the ones that are awakened to the existence of the upside down. They know about the upside down. They know about this darkness that's trying to crowd into the light. That's just like the Christian, but a little backwards. And what I mean by that is that the Christian, when someone becomes a Christian, when Jesus saves a person and opens their eyes, they're awakened to the cosmic war going around them that they were totally ignorant of. They're awakened to the existence of this upside down. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings, which I also love, that even though most people in Middle Earth are going about their lives, especially those in the Shire, there's a few who realize that there's a darkness trying to destroy everything. And even if people aren't asking for help, they know that everyone needs it. So God sends people into the upside down. But we live in the upside down. That's the difference. Paul responds to this vision, right? This vision comes and the gospel stirs him to go and help. And he's like the, the first responder, right? The fireman going into the fire. He knows the danger. He sees the hostility, but he wants to help. So he runs in to fight. He's not afraid of the difficulty or the adversity or hostility, but he's also not naive to believe it won't happen. But he knows that through that difficulty comes something beautiful, like the crucible creates something pure. And the Gospel shows us, the story of Jesus shows us the Son of God coming off His throne and entering into, if you will, the darkness. 
the upside down. That Jesus comes in. He's the first one to come in for us. And then He fills us. And through us now, we go into the upside down and turn everything upside down. And you know that when you're upside down, turning everything upside down, it ends up right side up. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's what He means when He says, I'm making all things new. But the right side up in the upside down is offensive to the world. The world hates it. The world doesn't understand it. We see this clearly in the birth of this Thessalonian church. Paul walks into the synagogue, right? And he starts participating in the service that's going on with the Jews who have reading of Scripture. And as they read Scripture and comment on it, he starts to read it probably and comment on it and teach that, by the way, all these Old Testament Scriptures that you're reading point to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, the one who died 20-ish years ago and rose from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah that you're waiting for. And some are persuaded. He does this for several weeks. There are many who come to believe. Some men, some women, and a guy named Jason, likely the church begins to meet in his house. I love how specific. It's like, it wasn't, oh, they started meeting in some guy's house. No, his name was Jason. He was a real guy. And then as was the pattern, there were those who didn't believe and those who got very upset. In Acts chapter 16, Beginning in verse 5, it says there were Jews who were jealous. And it says, taking some wicked men of the rabble. What a great word. The wicked men of the rabble. That's like just losers hanging out in the city with nothing to do, looking for a fight to have or something to break. Hey guys, let's go get these Christians in Jason's house. Oh, sounds good. They form a mob, it says. They set the city in an uproar and they attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, particularly Paul and Silas and Timothy, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting this, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king Jesus. And the people in the cities were disturbed when they heard these things. So listen to the charges that they are making. These men have turned the world upside down. That's very bold. I've never been accused of that. Those Christians are turning the world upside down. I'm not sure that's how the world views Christians today. And there may be reasons for that. Forgive me, but there's a lot of false conversions today. Meaning, not everyone who says there's a Christian is a Christian. It's easy to say you're a Christian. It's popular to say you're a Christian. Most, if not many, self-proclaimed Christians don't upset the world because they live just like it. And what I mean by that is just like, this don't look very different. 
I mean, think about this. Like, and just make it personal to you because I know in your mind you're thinking about some Christian you don't like or something. So don't do that. Just think about yourself for a second. And let's just play imaginary for a second, right? Okay, let's just imagine you stop being a Christian right now. Does anything change? And I think that's the difference, right? When, when someone like, stops being a Christian, like, you would expect like, wow, I, I was living like this and now I'm going to live like this. Because when you become a Christian, it was, I'm now living like this when I was living like this. My fear is that the world is being upset because we don't look much different than the world. It's interesting when Paul writes about the Thessalonians, he writes about, man, when you guys became Christians, woo! What does he say? 1 Thessalonians 1.5 The Gospel came in word, but in power, and the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. You guys were excited about Jesus, and everyone hated you. So, it's interesting, the opponents in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, They're not misunderstanding the message. They understand it perfectly. And they are seeing it lived out dramatically in the lives of those of their countrymen. They're living according to different values all of a sudden. They're living in a way that actually is almost opposite of the world. Like what? Well, you think about the Christian life, it's a commissioned life. You think about commission, enlisting. Like you are been sent. You have a purpose. You have a boss. And most people in the world live lives according to their own desires as they rule themselves. When you say that, man, I'm a Christian and I'm a person of the book. I live my life according to God's Word in a world that lives according to the words of men. Largely. Christian life is a pure life when the world seems quite devoted to pleasure. The Christian life, we'll read in 1 Thessalonians, is actually a pretty quiet life. In contrast to a world that largely is making a lot of noise about itself. The Christian life is a hopeful life where Even death doesn't extinguish the hope that we have. And it's a thankful life, which in the world we see now, we're surrounded by people who feel quite entitled. And so, it's an upside-down life, if you will, not merely because the people say, well, this is how I want to live my life. This is right for me. Those who come to faith, those who are saved by Jesus, see the world for what it is and actually believe it's right for everyone. That it's the only way for everyone. And that's offensive. Now, they turn the world upside down. They also charge them with acting against the decrees of Caesar, which is largely probably the worship of Caesar, but it certainly could apply in other ways. 
we see that the normal Christian life turns the world upside down because it actually touches real life. Like, if you're going to say, like, man, you're breaking these laws or you're going against these rules, these ethics, these morals that our culture has, that means you're behaving in a certain way. You're not just believing, but that belief is actually shaping how you live life in real places. Now, I don't know if they're actually breaking laws. There were lots of accusations made at Jesus, and falsely so, and accusations made at the disciples, and falsely so, but we know that Jesus nor the apostles ever said, hey, civil disobedience, throw off the government if you can. In fact, they said quite the opposite. They said, obey the laws of the land, pray for your leaders, even pray for the emperor who's killing Christians. That's abnormal. But true allegiance to Jesus is actually going to result in a different way of living in the world that's beyond just a mentality. It's going to touch real life. And why is that? Well, there's some major questions that everyone who is living is asking. Who am I? Why am I here? What's right? What's wrong? What happens after I die? Those are questions that everyone asks and is seeking answers to. And at the heart of it, a Christian has abnormal answers to those questions. And by abnormal, I mean different than the world. We have abnormal answers to a question of identity. Of who am I? Am I defined by by my ethnicity? Am I defined by my education? Am I defined by my experience? Am I defined by what I've done or not done? Am I defined by my personality? Defined by my... What is it? The Bible says you're defined by the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's different than the world. Morality. Well, that's a huge one. How do you figure out what's right and wrong? We live according to the Word of God. Which is an abnormal answer to that normal question. The world is going to give all kinds of answers. Well, you know, follow your heart. I mean, the one that's deceptively evil and sick. The world's going to say, you know what? Um, things change. We've got to be more progressive. That was true back then, but it's not true today. The world is asking questions that are like, I never thought we would ever ask. Like, what is a man? And what is a woman? The Bible gives answers to those things. But when you believe and stand for those abnormal answers, you are going to be persecuted because you're going to be very different than the majority of the world. And we have abnormal questions, or sorry, abnormal answers to the question of destiny. What happens after you die? And people like say all kinds of things. I've spent in recent weeks time with people who have experienced great loss, who do not believe. And maybe you wouldn't, but maybe you would be surprised at some of the things they say. They sound like fairy tale things. And I know they're trying to uh, kind of grab onto things to make themselves feel good. But they're not things that are true. 
and they're not things that are lasting. The Bible tells us where death came from. The Bible tells us what comes after death. And the Bible tells us how that enemy is defeated. Abnormal answer though. Because it means you have to talk about things like sin. Which is a taboo word in today's culture. When the answers are different than the world, you can expect to be persecuted. You can expect to be afflicted and marginalized and accused because the way you live stands in very stark contrast to the ways of the world. Even if you say nothing. I've experienced that firsthand. By God's grace, my family will not listen to the sermon. But if they do, so be it. Most of my family does not believe. And although I am a pastor, I don't have to say anything pastoral or biblical for them to be offended by me. Because they know what I believe. And we believe things differently. And I still love them, but I stand for different things. Now, if you turn in Acts over, if you're in Thessalonians, just a couple books over to 2 Timothy, I want to show you something that may surprise you. So Acts, Romans, 1 and Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all churches Paul wrote to. Then we get to Thessalonians 1 and 2, and then you get to letters personally written to young pastors, Timothy, who is with Paul in Thessalonica. But in his second and last letter, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, I would draw your attention to verse 12. It says simply, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you believe that? It's a pretty easy thing to understand. The question becomes, what is the godly, quote, normal life of a Christian? And do I really want that if that means it's going to bring persecution? But I'll give you a little hint. If it's anything like the life of Christ, that ended there. And it seems like as a people, we try to do everything we can to avoid the cross. So, they are living in such a way where they can be accused of breaking the laws of the land. I doubt they actually are, but they're accused of it for the things they stand and the ways they live that are different they can see in daily life. But I want to be careful because the third charge is interesting. It says these men are saying there is no other king than Jesus in a city that's under the emperor who they've been commanded to worship. I want us to understand that this is not about a moral life. Christianity is not primarily about a moral life. Being a Christian is not about the adoption of a particular code of ethics or rules. Being a Christian is not primarily about the acceptance of a few miraculous truths that no one else believes. It's not about the adoption of a label to make yourself sound spiritual or feel like you're saved. Christianity is a life-altering transfer of soul citizenship from one kingdom to another. 
A transfer of soul citizenship from one kingdom to another. And as a result of saying, I live under a different authority, your normal Christian life under that authority and that message is offensive because you're not just saying, Jesus is king for me. You're saying Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, those who refuse to acknowledge that will be offended because that's an exclusive claim. That's an exclusive claim to authority over everything. And ultimately, it demands a decision. It demands a decision and requires a total shift of allegiance. And a decision to worship King Jesus as God is a decision to declare all other gods false. That's offensive to the world because there it's full of lots of gods and lots of ways and lots of kings. But when you decide Jesus is the king, that decide, side, kill, you destroy any other option. It's not, well, we're going to have a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddha, and a little bit of Allah. No, it's Jesus alone. Christ alone. And so the people are understanding very clearly the claims that these people are making. They're like, well, yeah, well, Jesus is king, but I mean the emperor is like king, right? No, no, no. I'm saying Jesus is king and the emperor is king. Big K versus little K, right? This is why Paul writes in the first verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, in describing what's happened, he doesn't just say, hey, you guys have started to live really good lives. He says, you have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. You've served, or you've turned from what is dead and false to serve what is true and alive. A decision for Jesus is to say simply this, Jesus is normal and this world is abnormal. That this is the upside down and we are living for that which is right side up. So if you'd open last thing, the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians, I will read every verse and this morning I'm just going to read the first verse. But I thought it would be awkward for the person reading Scripture to just read that verse. be kind of anticlimactic. So I'll read it as we begin our study. Paul, Silvanus, which would be Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And I know you read that and you go, yeah, dear John, okay, move on. Oh no. As you look at that verse, I want to remind us as we conclude that we are in a world living spiritually an abnormal life. But we are actually in God living somewhat of a normal life. And I'll explain what that means. Even though the Christian life is 
ostensibly abnormal in comparison, so much so that it's different and even offensive to the world, I want us to be understand that it's not separated from normal, real life. We were never called to separate from normal, real life of the world. Paul calls the church the church of the Thessalonians. The church is Thessalonian. Just why, as we are Snohomishian. I don't know what it would be called, right? But we live in the Northwest. We're Washingtonian. We're Snohomish. We are part of this people. The disciples are Thessalonian in this church. They go about their lives like regular Thessalonians in many regards. They eat like Thessalonians. They drink the same things that Thessalonians drink. They play along with the Thessalonians and among the Thessalonians. They work with Thessalonians. They marry and they parent and they live like Thessalonians. They even suffer like Thessalonians. But there's something different. I thought it appropriate to be abnormal in my dress today. People are like, why are you wearing a tie? <laughs> thought it worked with the theme. Actually, in truth, I'm doing a funeral after this service. And it's a funeral where it will be largely full of non-believers for the death of a six-year-old girl. And you go, what do you say to them? I'll give you the notes later if you like to see what I said. That's a hard thing to think about. But you know where I end up? 1 Thessalonians. There's a verse in Thessalonians that we'll eventually get to over the next couple weeks. But the thing about Christians is that we live sometimes under the false belief that we're not going to suffer like everybody else. We suffer like Thessalonians. Suffering comes to us all. Tragedy, disappointment, disillusionment, loss, we suffer. And there's a verse in Thessalonians that speaks to the grief that comes from loss. From the death of a loved one. And in writing to Christians who are suffering for lots of reasons, but they're just suffering seeing people die as well. Paul says, grief. So if you're a Christian and you experience loss or difficulty and you think for a second that like, oh, I shouldn't grieve, let me assure you that if you don't grieve, something's wrong. God grieves with us. God expects us to grieve. Even Jesus Himself wept before He raised Lazarus from the dead knowing He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So pain comes to us all, but there's a difference. And Paul says, grieve, but not like the world that doesn't have hope. So when I say we go through normal life, I hope you understand what I mean when I say we go through normal life abnormally. We grieve. 
Because we live in a fallen world and that fallen world sometimes falls on us. But we grieve as a people who have hope, even hope beyond death. That's why Paul can say, yes, it's the church of the Thessalonians, but what does he say? In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we are of Thessalonians. Yes, we are of a real life in a real place with real people, but we are in Jesus. We are governed by something completely different, by a different identity and a different loyalty and a different trajectory and a different power and a different hope. And so we live life, but we live differently and play differently and work differently and marry differently and suffer differently. It is probably best described as an upside-down life in the upside-down. And it's really a normal Christian life if you consider it a life like Christ. And I was reminded between services, but you realize that there is only one person who has ever truly lived a normal life. And that's Jesus. But that normal life was very abnormal in the eyes of the world. A life like Christ is a life that is shaped by Christ. And so I'll consider a couple things when we describe that life. And this is what we'll hit this season as we go through this series. And I was reminded as Greg preached yesterday at the wedding, so I stole a couple of his statements because I thought they were really well said. And that is life upside down in the upside down is a life where we die to live. A life where we serve to lead. A life where the last will be first. And more than that, if it's at all like Christ, it's a life that shows that the way down is often the way up. That to be low is actually to be high. That the broken heart is actually the pathway to the healed heart. That to have nothing in Christ is to actually have everything. That the humble spirit is the joyful spirit, which is very antithetical to the world. But more than anything, that to bear the cross, a place of our guilt and shame, but a place of our forgiveness and redemption, to bear that cross and to stand for Christ is actually the way to wear the crown. That's very different. And so as we come forward this morning to the table that Christ prepared for us, if you are not a Christian, I would just like to assure you that your life right now isn't normal. By normal, I mean it's not the life that God has for you. You are stuck in an upside-down, broken world, and you don't realize it. And sometimes... The Lord reveals that to us like He's revealing to many people who I'll speak to today. When we see an 80-year-old die, we go, oh, that's natural part of life. When you see a six-year-old torn from your life, you realize things are broken. Something's wrong. And I agree. Something's wrong. And if you don't know Christ, let me assure you, He's the only one that can fix it. 
But for those who are Christians, I want you to understand that as you come to the table, you are confessing certain things. It's not an invitation, come live in the upside down. It's actually a reminder and an acknowledgement that you already do. You are coming to the table and you're saying, man, this world is broken. And as you come to the table, you're not saying, it's really broken out there. You're saying, no, I'm actually, it's really broken in here. And that I need Jesus to save me and give me new life. But what this is also a celebration is two other things. One, as you see others come up, you realize I'm not the only abnormal weirdo in the world, right? Good, I'm I'm gathered together with other weirdos who realize that their normal life is going to be very abnormal. But as we celebrate in taking the bread and partaking of the cup, we remind ourselves that there is a quote, normal, true normal, perfect, glorious, free from the presence of sin, life coming. And that's at Christ's return. And that's why Christ said, do this and remember from me until I return or you return to me and everything is made right. We look forward to that day. Let's pray.